Hello and welcome to the EMJ Podcast. My name is Simon Carley and today I'm going to be taking you through Caroline Leach's assessment of the best and brightest from the March edition of the Emergency Medicine Journal 2021. Now of course at the moment we're all still in the throes of Covid-19 and life is very very different but the emergency medicine research goes on and it's a great delight to bring you um, several really interesting papers, just a selection because there's more in the journal um, that we've got out this month. So Karen Leach, um, a long-term friend of mine who now works in the Midlands, pre-hospital and emergency medicine, has put together ones that have particularly caught our eye. So the paper number one is from China, and it's our editor's choice this month, so it's free and open access. You can download it and read it without going through any firewalls. And it's about barriers to saving lives in out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. It's a retrospective study looking at the barriers to effective dispatcher-assisted CPR when bystanders call the emergency medicine services in China. And the study found a median of 30 minutes delay between collapse and then calling for help. It's a 1.9% rate of bystander CPR. And when CPR instructions were provided over the phone, only 46% persisted with performing compressions. Devastatingly, there were no cardiac arrest survivors in this cohort. That's really worrying, I've got to say. And the accompanying commentary highlights the importance of community education and training for the public to be able to recognise cardiac arrest and have the confidence to start bystander CPR as well as a dispatch system that can stay on the phone to guide people until the EMS arrive at the scene. I think it's a really interesting paper, and you may also have noticed that the European Society has put out the latest guidelines for managing cardiac arrest. And what's noticeable in all of those is that there are new technologies knocking around. There's new therapies, targeted temperature management, ECMO, etc. But all of these are going to rely on the basics being done well. And that really starts in the community. And this paper is another good example of why we do need to focus a lot of our efforts in getting the basics right. Our second paper is looking at emergency medicine going green, and that is an increasing awareness of the impacts of healthcare on climate change, and emergency medicine might be slightly behind on this initiative compared with some other specialties, such as anaesthesia actually, although actually I also think we're actually way ahead of some others as well. So in this month's EMJ, Authors from the, the new Royal College of Emergency Medicine Environmental Sustainability Special Interest Group, a bit of a mouthful there, have put together an interesting overview of how emergency departments might improve their environmental sustainability. Lots of things that we can do. We can reduce waste, think about plastic wrapping, disposable equipment or cups, inappropriate glove use, etc. And we can use things like reducing the amount of nitrous oxide or metadose inhalers in the ED, because they're pretty awful. Nitrous oxide is a terrible drug for global warming, actually. Installing low energy lighting is a possibility, or even using telemedicine for virtual ED clinics, because transportation costs is one of the big impacts that we have on the environment as healthcare uh, workers and providers. So I think this is something we should all start to think about. And there are going to be challenges there, but like Caroline, I do hope that we might be able to resume some carbon neutral conference events in the future. Um, rather than relying on teleconferencing, it's not the same, is it? There is still, as a human being and as an educator and as a learner, that personal interaction with people, there is great value in that. And I'm sure many of you will agree that the conversations that sometimes you have outside of the lectures and things like that, in the corridors, at, at lunch, those are where a lot of the value from conferences come. So maybe, hopefully, that'll come again soon. But we, as a conference group, also need to make sure that we don't have a massive impact from our conferences on the environment. So moving on to paper number three is around biomarkers for TBI. So S100B, again, the protein that would never die, in my opinion, not Caroline's. Um, it seems to be one of the most studied biomarkers for the detection of traumatic brain injury that we've ever seen. And I can think of research going back decades on this. 
But in this study, um, research team aimed to identify whether this laboratory biomarker could identify clinically significant TBI, traumatic brain injury, in patients with GCS 13 to 15 attending five Canadian emergency departments. The patients had symptoms and signs meeting indications for a CT, and they were within 24 hours of injury. And using the predetermined threshold, only four of the 24 clinically significant TBIs would have been identified by the S100B biomarker test. However, this might have been due to the delay between the head injury and the blood sampling, as the half-life of S100B is reported to be only as little as 90 to 120 minutes. Interesting, and also of note, 88% of patients were under 65, which does not match my typical local TBI demographics, nor does it match um, Caroline's. And some of the conditions defined in the paper as clinically insignificant radiological findings amongst 13 patients would arguably have led to a hospital admission in the UK. So S100B, yet another study, yet another study that shows that it's not yet ready for prime time. And let's just see where this goes. It does seem to be a marker in, in pursuit of an indication in the ED at the moment. But, you know, always happy to read and see new research. Speaking of new and interesting things, and particularly of head injuries, um, there's a subgroup analysis of the CRASH-3 trial. If you remember, that was about tranexamic acid, randomised control trial of tranexamic acid in head injury. And so the CRASH-3 trial, gosh, it's possibly the most controversial paper I've seen in recent years. And in particular around the subgroup analysis um, that have been used to produce future recommendations about clinical management, certainly in the UK. And this month, I've got a really interesting paper um, looking at a nested substudy assessing the pre- and post-randomization CT scans to compare the presence or volume of bleeding in TBI patients who received TXA or placebo in the trial, because a reduction in bleeding was the purported mechanism why it might work in subgroups. So the median time of the pre-scan was at two hours post-injury, and the median post-randomization scan time was at 23 hours, quite a long time. And it was interesting to note that 39% of patients who had a newly detected hemorrhage on the post-randomization scan. So we need to acknowledge the limitations of the study. You know, it's a subgroup analysis. It wasn't the prime thing of the study and all that. Um, but the results do find that there was no significant difference in the rate of new bleeding, as in not seen on the first scan, or progressive bleeding, more than 25% increase in volume. However, if patients with fixed dilated pupils, and I've argued and Caroline's argued and many others have argued, that's the group that, quite frankly, you're not going to make a difference in, in terms of outcome. So if you took that group out, then TXA may prevent new hemorrhage, interestingly. And for those centres who are thinking of omitting the eight-hour infusion maintenance dose of TXA, this might be relevant. And as Caroline says, conflict of interest there. She is a co-author of the paper, and I've blogged on it as well. So it's really interesting. It's a great challenge about how you deal with subgroup analyses because, as we know, if you look at the whole range of subgroup analyses in evidence-based medicine and critical appraisal, lots of subgroup analyses which look really promising, when you then test them formally later on, they just don't pan out. So, a high degree of scepticism, but interesting nonetheless. Next paper is looking at whether happy doctors um, lead to a better patient satisfaction. It'd be nice if they would. A nice study by Bird et al. aimed to determine the effects of self-assessed empathy, burnout and patient-assessed emergency physician empathy on patient satisfaction in a single ED in the US. And the primary findings that were individually, only patient-assessed empathy was relevant to patient satisfaction, but there were synergistic effects when EPs had all three positive wellness markers correlating much higher levels of patient satisfaction. Now clearly, there's lots of other biases in a study like that. Confounding results, for example, not giving adequate time to patient resulting in lower patient satisfaction, etc. However, the study should make us think about the impact of burnout and compassion fatigue 
not just on the well-being of clinicians, but also as a potential barrier to an effective doctor-patient relationship. How organisations support doctors to achieve low levels of burnout and high levels of empathy is not discussed in the article and is very difficult to do. But it's good, and I think it's something that, from a manager's point of view, and when we're speaking to our trusts, if there is a link between positivity amongst the clinicians and better patient outcomes, better patient satisfaction, that's something which hopefully is worth them investing in. And then finally, there's a paper on the handheld electronic devices in ED. So, if a patient sees a staff member on an electronic device in a clinical area, do they think it is unprofessional and that the individual is using it for personal reasons or avoiding work? ED staff, well, we might well be looking up a clinical guideline, checking the um, electronically recorded vital signs, recruiting a patient to research, or in the paediatric department, we might be using a device to distract a child. During the COVID-19 pandemic, we have increasingly used devices to allow patients to communicate with families when visiting is not permitted. And in 2017, 438 patients, carers and relatives from a single UKED were surveyed to establish their perception of staff members using these sort of devices. During the study, 27% of respondents had seen a clinician use a handheld device during the visit, with the majority assuming that it was the clinical work. 78% were happy for staff to use them at work, although a quarter prefer this not to be at the bedside or during the consultation. The paper provides important considerations for how we educate and reassure patients on handheld devices um, in the future. And that's particularly relevant because I know of several people who are looking at restructuring their electronic records, which will rely on staff using handheld devices, because quite frankly, in most of our departments, certainly in the UK, there just is insufficient space for people to sit down and use a desktop computer. So really interesting stuff this month. Quite controversial things around TXA and TBI and S100B, the use of environmental issues in emergency medicine and bystander CPR, handheld electronic devices, and finally, does happy doctors lead to happy patients? These are all good questions. You read the papers in full in the journal, and by all means, keep in touch. There's lots more in this month's edition. By all means, tweet us, check us on Facebook, write us a letter, perhaps with a pen, and put it in the post. Nobody's done that for some time. But other than anything else, I hope your life gets better. I hope COVID calms down wherever you are. And we hope to hear from you soon. Have fun.